Hey, good morning, family. I'm glad you're here. It's good to see you. Welcome to those of you that are joining us online. We're grateful for you. Well, why don't you get your Bible out and open to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 as we're going to pick back up our study in 2 Corinthians after uh, having one week away. And so we've, we've crossed over the halfway point of our time in 2 Corinthians. And uh, as the Lord has been instructing us and teaching us and preparing us through this study of this uh, amazing part of Scripture, uh, we've been able to see uh, the way that He's using this to challenge us as a family. So you think about um, the way that, that God fathers us, the way that He shepherds us, that we're His family, and yet we're individual members of His kingdom. And so think of it in terms of, of, a, of, of your family or of a family where uh, there might be times as a parent, there's times as a father where I may have, I have one-on-one conversations with the people that are in my family about things that pertain directly to them. And then there are other times when we might have a, a family meeting and everybody comes and sits down so we can have a discussion about something. And it's not that one of those times is uh, more intense than others or more impactful than others. They're both uh, equally important, but they're different. And so when we come in here and gather on Sunday mornings, this is our family meeting. And so God speaks to us through his word as a family, and God's speaking to you individually uh, throughout the week, uh, through your Bible study, through your interaction with circumstances and people, and so on and so forth. And so those two things are going on simultaneously. And when you, when you, what I said last week is that when we, when we hit an unexpected bump in the road, when we hit a uh, a moment where we're 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 shaken and we stop or we look around and we realize and hope begins to fade and things begin to, uh, you know, seem a little foggy and what we need is clarity. What I said was important for you to remember that you think back as you look forward. Think back. Think about what God's been showing us and what God's been teaching us. Think about what he's been showing you and teaching you in the, in the near proximity to that moment, and you'll see the hand and wisdom of God in those moments, and it will help you as you look forward. It's don't look back, look forward, think back. It's very important that we do that. And so, as I was preparing for today, I was thinking through all that, and I was thinking about that's exactly why we preach expositionally through books of the Bible, because otherwise, what ends up happening is you would end up hearing the things that I want to say or the things that I feel like I should say, or even because I could take the liberty to use different parts of Scripture or passages of Scripture to illuminate a certain topic or a certain conversation or a certain discussion, which sometimes that might be appropriate. But the beauty of preaching through books of the Bible 
is that God is directing the timing and the topics and the circumstances as we're moving through these things because there we spend months and months preaching through books of the Bible. And instead of just dropping into something, we have some frame of reference. It's always shocking to me when I'm talking to somebody who maybe they're new here and they say, well, I've never been a part of a church that preaches through books of the Bible this way. Or uh, I'm talking to somebody somewhere and they're talking about how, you know, uh, maybe we get into a conversation about our other pastors sometimes want to engage me in conversation about that and, you know, want to try to maybe sway me to uh, topical preaching or whatever the case may be. And here's my response is always the same thing. I think to myself, well, would you, how would you feel if your child had a biology teacher and every day in biology, she just picked a spot in the biology textbook and started highlighting it? No one would ever learn biology. See, if you don't learn chapter 1, you can't understand chapter 2. And if you don't understand chapter 2, you're not going to understand chapter 3. And that goes for all the things that we learn. I mean, what if you had a math teacher who just topically taught math? You'd all be, well, scratch that illustration because most of you in here aren't good at math anyway, right? So, but the see, because you had probably a bad teacher. You see my point? And so God gave us his word in a certain way, shouldn't we study it in that way? Of course we should. Absolutely. And so you'll see the, the, the providence and wisdom of God as we begin to move into chapters 8 and 9. And I have a, a, a notation here in my notes to give you a, an update on Colby and Haley and Posey and but they're here, see? So they're here this morning. So amen. So. It's been a joy to let God work in us as we've prayed for you and just encouraged you. And um, So uh, way ahead of schedule for you to be here this morning. Wasn't expecting that. It's a great blessing. We receive it as a gift from God. And... Uh, if you get the opportunity, um, no long conversations, but you might want to walk by and just say, hey, I love you. That'd be, that'd be appropriate and wonderful because you do, and it shows, and we're grateful. We are. All right, let's pray, and then we'll read together. Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we have as a family to gather around this word that you've, you've given to us providentially to look at together this morning, in this moment in time, that nothing escapes your knowledge and understanding. And we are so grateful as we look at your word to recognize and realize the way that you move in the midst of our lives, in the midst of uh, the lives of us together corporately as a family, the way you're working in the world around us, Lord. And we continually desire that we'd have eyes to see 
your work around us. Thank you that the greatest, most powerful, most prevalent, most impactful things that go on in this world are the invisible things, but not invisible to those who have spiritual eyes. And so, Lord, give us those eyes. Give us spiritual ears that we might hear. Holy Spirit, come move, work in our hearts. We want to delight in what you've done in us today. Thank you. We promise to give you the glory, praise, and honor in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, so let's remember now that um, we sort of launched off of a verse a, about a chapter and a half ago where the Apostle Paul tells the church at Corinth that they're, li- they're living restricted lives because of their affections, that their affections are reducing their ability to live the life that they could be living. And so this whole conversation through chapter 7 was about that. And it would appear that now we've switched into a whole new conversation in chapter 8 and chapter 9. And there's probably some people who aren't here this morning because they knew that chapter 8 and chapter 9 were coming. And they're like, this is the time for me to take a vacation because I don't want to have this conversation. And I specifically uh, in the, cause I, I don't know if you realize this or not, but I like to toy with you a little bit, especially with regards to the listening guide. And so the, the blanks are always, I, I blank out words to, to keep you guessing to, to, I think about the people in the room that really frustrate me that try to fill in the blanks before I get to them. And so I smile when I think about how you're always wrong. (laughs) I don't know if that's good or bad, but you can pray for me about that. But here's what I did specifically today. I didn't put a blank where the word generosity is because I wanted you to already kind of, you know, lean back and go, okay, so this is what we're going to do, huh? Okay, good, because this is what we're going to do. So that's what the Bible's carried us to. All right, let's read chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. The Apostle Paul says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on your part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means... Of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he has started, that he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, See that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also generous, genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, 
so that your readiness and desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their needs so that their abundance may supply your need and there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathers little had no lack. So here we have this conversation. Remember, it was born out of this issue of their affections. And now what what Paul's alluding to is the fact that all the way back in 1 Corinthians, remember back in 1 Corinthians, this process started of Paul taking up this offering for the churches, the church in Jerusalem, and that the Macedonian church had been a big part of giving. And so Paul uses them as an illustration to remind the Corinthians about what they started to do. And you can tell by his words that they, he, they sent Titus. Titus had begun the process. They were eager about it. We'll get into all that next week. But now they had kind of not finished. You know, they just gotten excited about it, but they hadn't done the things that they had committed to do. Now, this is what you got to realize. If you, if you look back over these chapters leading up to this, that Paul's relationship with this church had been a little rocky. And now they're just starting to straighten things out. And remember, we're just coming off a big conversation two weeks ago about repentance and what genuine repentance is and how you can identify genuine repentance. And so imagine you have this challenging relationship with somebody and that you have worked through many issues and finally come to the place where you there's been repentance and restoration and now you're you're, you're, the relationship is back on solid ground. And what's the first thing you're going to bring up? Money. I mean, this Paul is something. That's a bold move. I mean, that is a bold move. Because here's the thing. I, as I've said week in and week out, he is so brokenhearted and so... Uh, just desperate in his soul for the for the Corinthians to get this right and for them to be restored and he loves them so much and yet even in all of that he refuses to not say what needs to be said it's such a beautiful picture it's such a beautiful picture so he brings up this controversial issue of money Now, what's going on in Jerusalem so we can understand? Well, first of all, there's a famine. Now, who makes up the church in Jerusalem? Well, they're mostly uh, former Jews who have accepted Christ and now are walking with the Lord. So here's a church of people who have embraced Christianity, have embraced Jesus. And so what is the consequence of that? Well, they've been alienated and fractured from their biological families. Their friendships have been severed. Their their family ties have been severed. So they've been basically disowned by their Jewish family members 
who wouldn't embrace Christ. And so they're kind of all alone. So you got this group of people who have lost all of their their uh, earthly connections to people, their safety net, if you will, and then a famine comes. Now think about why is this so incredibly, and then, then there's all this persecution that's been lobbed on top of that besides all of that. Now why do you think Paul is so passionate about this issue? Why is he so dead set on caring for these people in particular in Jerusalem. Because think about it. The churches that, that Paul is ministering to. He's not ministering in the church of Jerusalem. He's ministering to the Macedonians, to the Galatians, to the Corinthians, to the Ephesians. He's, he's ministering to the churches that are made up of Gentiles. And Paul realizes what's at issue here over and above everything else is witness. You see, these, these former Jews in Jerusalem, they were, they've, they've lived their whole life. They were born, taught from birth to hate Gentiles. They were referred to as, as filthy dogs. And, and Paul has given his life to the conversion and to the bringing the gospel to Gentiles. And now he sees through this tremendous need in Jerusalem, an opportunity for the Gentiles to actually care for the, for the Jews and for all of this to come together, for this healing to come together, for this. It's, it's about witness. You see, this whole issue of generosity above everything else, it's, a, it's about witness. If you have your listening guides, generosity is a clear demonstration of family. Because what we're going to do is we're going to have a conversation this week and next week and probably one more week after that about how all this works. But in order to do that, we've got we've to understand what we're talking about. See, the opening 15 verses of chapter 8 are basically the greatest treatise in the Bible of explaining what generosity is, not according to us, not according to what we think, according to God. And it's very important that when I say the word generosity, you understand what I'm talking about. And that's what the first 15 verses teach us. So the overarching issue here is that it demonstrates family. It demonstrates family. Now, lest you, maybe you're, I don't know, maybe you're new around here. Maybe this morning's your first time with us and you got, you're already thinking, man, every, you know, that's all churches talk about is money. Well, whatever. I'm not even going to address that so ridiculous. But here's what's not ridiculous. Is that first of all, everyone in this room is part of, that's, that's part of this family. You need to understand. You may not understand how this works, but you need to understand that you are part of a very generous family. This is a generous family. And so if you're not generous, then you are in the minority here. Lest you think I'm going to stand up here and hammer you all morning because your lack of faithfulness Nothing could be further from the truth. No, 
This church is exceedingly and abundantly generous in so many ways, and especially with regards to money. And it's such a, it's such a great blessing. That's why we're able to do the things that we're able to do. And it's a blessing. And it's phenomenal. So, let's talk about, well, now, what does it look like to be generous? What is generosity? Who is generous? Okay, number one, generosity, first of all, according to what the Bible teaches, is not tied to your wealth. We just need to dispel some of these myths that would jump into our head. Notice, notice in verse 12, down in verse 12, for if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. That's, that's an interesting statement because it's following up what Paul says in the very beginning in verses 1 and 2. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia for In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So clearly, right off the bat, Paul wants us to know that generosity is not tied to your wealth. See, most of us, when when we're looking for somebody to be generous, when we're thinking about Uh, somebody being generous, we're looking for thinking about somebody who is wealthy. Well, the Bible is completely dispelling that uh, myth. Giving is not a luxury of the rich. It's a privilege of the poor. That's what it is at its core. And God, God makes it to where uh, according to whatever he wants to do, uh, he he put he gives some a great deal, and he gives some not so much, and there might be uh, all sorts of reasons for that. Some of which we'll talk about over the next couple of weeks. But suffice it to say that clearly it's not a luxury for the rich. Clearly, the Macedonians refuse to let the their hardship and their circumstances keep them from joy. Isn't that interesting? Keep them from joy. These dirt poor people begged Paul. That's what he says. They begged for the privilege of giving. While yet today, in all of our abundance, the American church evangelical church comes up with a multitude of reasons not to give. I mean, I could bore you with all the statistics uh, of the depressing state of Christianity and generosity and how so many churches are unable to uh, do anything, much less meet the needs to keep the doors open, so on and so forth. The average Christian church attender member gives about 2% of their income and on and on it goes. But here we have a picture of in some ways as a, as a faith family here that it's not that way everywhere, praise God. And that's simply just a result of God's graceful work in us through his word. That's what that is. 
And you, you think about how do these, how, why would people who are literally dirt poor beg for the opportunity to give? And as I thought about this, I thought, now, have I seen this? And I thought, well, yes, I have 100% seen this. Because what happens is when I take people to Brazil for the first time, it inevitably will happen that at some point during our interaction with these different churches, going to different villages, these churches that we've planted, and, and every time we go to a church, of course, they're so excited, and they just everyone's gathered waiting for us, and they want to roll out the red carpet, and they're, and they're always trying to, you know, they're, they're competing with each other to not just host us, but they want us to come at certain times, like, they, they'll, they, they, if they don't, they want to be able to feed us. That's their favorite thing to do. And so we'll be out in the middle of somewhere in some village with a, just a little dirt pathway and a bunch of huts made out of mud. And they will literally get out the best that they have. They will serve us food that they would only get to eat maybe once a year, like Thanksgiving. Or at a wedding feast or something. Like they would never be that extravagant. But they do that for us. And when it's someone's first time there, they always say, Pastor, this is crazy. Like why? I feel bad. Like they shouldn't do this for us. They need this way more than we do. And I said, well, that's true, but it's not true. I said, now what I want you to do is I want you to, when we sit down to eat, look around. So we sit down to eat and they look around and all the people in the village have this giant smile on their face. And they're so filled with joy and happiness because they've had the opportunity to give. It fills them with such joy. And once I realized that, I would never rob them from that experience. I never tell them, why don't you just make a pot of beans? We'll be fine. Because then they just sit there watching us and go, what? They're, they're eating beans. It's the craziest thing. It's because joy. That's why it, it makes it makes them genuinely happy. It fills their heart with gratitude towards God. And that's the thing that you have to realize about generosity. That's so it's so nonsensical sometimes that it's always surprising. If it's not surprising, it's not generosity. Now, you got to think, think this through. Especially according to this text. How, what do I mean by that? Well, see, surprising, what I mean is because when a person in Scripture is generous or when a people are gen- generous, the gift is always more than expected. It's surprising. Watch. Verse 3, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Now, this is completely counter to the way we oftentimes think. See, oftentimes the way a, a, 
a Western or American Christian approaches this issue of generosity is tell me how much I'm supposed to give so that I can check the box, so that I can just go, okay, that's done. I don't have to think about that or worry about that anymore. Well, that's giving, but that's not generosity. Generosity is surprising. What we do is we think, you know, if I won the Powerball, think of what I could do. That's what we think. And when, sometimes we have this little fantasy about winning the Powerball and having all these hundreds of millions of dollars or whatever the case may be. And we think, man, how generous we could be. Mm, no. Because if you won the Powerball, you, you could give a lot, but that doesn't mean you'd be generous because here's the thing. If it wasn't surprising, it wouldn't be generous. So if you won the Powerball, how much would you have to give to be generous? Enough to be surprising, right? If you think about it, yes. It's, it's not an issue of, it's not connected to your, your wealth, yeah, generosity is not tied to being blessed in abundance. There are principles about giving that are tied to being blessed in abundance. But generosity is different. This, this isn't, Paul's not talking about, the, he's not talking to the Corinthians about tithing. He's talking to them about generosity. It's a totally different thing. See, generosity is born out of, well, there, there is a sense that, that there's an assessment of what one has. And then in accordance to the need that has made itself uh, known. And then there's this surprising level of response. In gratitude that creates this joy. Paul equates it with grace. The most common word repeated in this chapter is grace over and over and over. It's the grace of God, the grace of God, the grace of God. And see, we miss this so often times when, when people say things like, well, you know what? If I get this job, man, I'm going to be generous. Or if I just get this raise or if I just pay off this debt, then think about how generous I can be. That is a complete misunderstanding of generosity. It's a complete misunderstanding. It might be a good sentiment, but it's, it, you don't understand what it is to be generous. If that's your thinking, it's not at all what the Bible teaches. You know, if, if God would supply my needs and bless me, then I could be generous. Really? Who's gonna, who says that? Who would say that in this room? If God would supply my needs and bless me, then I would be generous. Boy, are you confused or What? How do you think you have what you have? No matter how small it is, how do you think you have it? Where do you think you got it? Who is the source of that? 
You have breath in your lungs. Who gives you that? You see how, how we can get so disconnected if we, if we allow our flesh to speak into us. Generosity in the Bible is always, always, always surprising. Example in Mark chapter 12. This is the story you're all familiar with. And Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And then a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called the disciples to him and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. You see? You see how Jesus dismantles that idea? This, this concept that, you know, if you're talking about giving, then certainly the more you have, the more you can give. Yes. But if you're talking about generosity, those are two different things. They're two different things. Jesus would say, no, it's surprising. And that's really the first thing we understand about the nature of generosity is that it's, it's not at all what we think it is. So it's surprising in the sense that here's what's true. You can have very little and give much, according to Mark chapter 12, and you can give a lot and not be generous. Right? Sure. So the first thing is understand generosity is surprising. And listen, so many times in this faith family, we, we are not only the recipients of, but the dispensers of surprising generosity. It's such a blessing. Is such a blessing. And it, I think what encourages me the most about it is just the fact that not only is it something that I don't have to, it's just, you know, I, I don't need more things to worry about. I mean, let's look around. I mean, you're a handful. I mean, since we're having a family meeting might have a couple of issues we might need to discuss. I, I don't need another thing to, to worry about or stress about. Or, but you know what? Not only do I not have to think about it, but I get the blessing of just knowing how God's working and, and never, never having any concept of who it's connected to. That's the beauty of it. So the, the last thing I would want to know is any specific information because it would just totally mess me up. But just to see God work in the way that only he can work is so encouraging. So what's the second thing that Paul teaches us? Well, it's that generosity is always intentional and willing. It's always intentional and willing. You know, I just think about how there's so many ways that this has been misused and misappropriated and misunderstood. And, and I'm going to give people the benefit of the doubt and say that that wasn't their intention. But 
you know, this idea that, you know, we're going to keep passing the plate and no one's leaving until we reach the goal. It's so unbiblical. It's so unbiblical. That is not at all the way the Bible would teach us to approach this topic. See, he says, look at what he says in verse 8. It's not me having to tell you, you know, now in the Greek, we have a command here. No, look, he says, I say this not as a command, just so we'd all understand. It's not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. That's the point. The point is that generosity flows intentionally and willfully out of something else. It can't be forced. It can't be coerced. It can't be driven by guilt. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work. And here's the thing. The, the thing is, is that in, or, in, to do that, to do that, the person who's in charge of doing that has to violate the, the own, their own overarching belief that God ultimately is the provider and the one who's going to take care, right? The, our faith and our trust is not in ourselves and our ability, but it's in the Lord. It's in the Lord. And so he says it's not as a command. And the reason for this is because it illustrates what's always true, and that is that the true measure of love is always sacrifice. It's always sacrifice, always. And sacrifice is no good unless it's intentional and willful. See, if sacrifice has been forced, we automatically know, well, well, that's not really sacrifice. That, that's probably more self-preservation or some other wrong thing. And we get this because Jesus used sacrifice over and over and over to illustrate what true love is. So he comes along, for example, and says in the book of John, he says, greater love has no one than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. So the way Jesus says, here's the greatest illustration of love is what? Sacrifice. The highest love that's ever been is a love that you can identify through the willing, intentional sacrifice. What do I mean willing and intentional? Well, Jesus said, no one takes his life from him, but he lays it down of his own accord. You see that? I mean, it's no, Jesus didn't die for us because he had to. He willfully and for the joy set before him, because that's the nature of love, true love. If there's not an element of sacrifice, it is not love. It's not love. And so therefore, generosity is born out of what? It's, it's, what does the, the entire chapter 8 teach us? Oh, in fact, Paul just uses grace and generosity as synonyms. He interchanges them. He says, he starts the chapter by saying, I want to I inform you about the grace of God. And then he starts talking about this offering. 
Well, why didn't you say I want to form you about an offering? Because to him, the offering and grace, grace and the offering, those are two interchangeable things. One is connected to the other, and there's no way to disconnect that. Notice back in verse 3, he said, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord. You see that? There's, they're, not, they're not being pressured into this. This isn't something driven by feeling guilty. No, it may be initiated by a feeling of conviction, but it's, it's a response that is intentional and willful. Notice how Paul doesn't mention the amount of money that the Macedonians gave. Now, he could have. He's in charge of the offering. He knows. He's using them as an illustration. But he doesn't tell the church at Corinth, look at how much the church at Macedonia gave. wonder why he does that. Because, again, that would violate the principles that are laid out in this very passage. He's not trying to pit one church against another church. He's not, he's not trying to create competition between believers about who could give the most or whatever. Because that would just yield to an act of futility. I mean, people always look at me crazy when I say things like, you know, I go, look, if you don't want to give to God, keep your money. Keep it. Because if you don't want to and you give it to him, it's just going to disappear anyway. It's not going to do any good anyway. God's not going to use it to bless anybody because you gave it out of an act of compulsion. See, God's, got, God's not going to... It drives me crazy when people beg in the name of God. I'm not doing it. God, God doesn't beg. No, listen... If you think keeping it for yourself is better for you, have at it. Because you're going to find out real quickly that you're wrong. But if that's what you think, I mean, you're not going to believe me anyway. So the best way for you to figure this out is to experience the disaster on your own. Yes. You see, Paul, the reason why he doesn't give the amount or anything like that is he's pointing us to the fact that of, of what matters most, which is the spirit Behind the gift. That's what it's all about. It's about the spirit behind the gift. The, the, the mindset that you have when you give. So what's the third thing about generosity? Well, the third thing is that generosity is always a response to grace. But we have to really drive this home. We have to get this. See, what the Bible teaches about generosity is that when a person is generous, don't be like the Pharisees who make a YouTube video every time they give and try to see how many views they can get because of how much they gave. No, that's not how that works. You see, it's another thing that can we just talk? We're, so we're having a family meeting. I just feel like I, I need to just get off my chest all the things that super hyper annoy me. Another one is this. When I go into a church, 
Good gracious, I'm about to seriously ruin some friendships. And there's stuff in the church with name tags on it honoring the person that gave that thing. What in the heck is that? That's not biblical. You see, I just offended you. I can tell by the look on your face. That's silly. This isn't, you know, so-and-so gave this pew or gave this piano or gave this table or gave this. What I mean, who are we honoring here? Well, my question is, well, hold up. The person whose name's on the thing is just the person who stewarded. That wasn't their money. We're honoring the one whose money it is. We're not sticking uh, plaques all over the place, honoring the people who gave something to buy it. It God did that. Okay, I'm done. We can move on. It's a response to grace. To grace. So he started out in verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. He didn't say the money. He said the grace. The grace. And how is grace demonstrated? By their surprising act of generosity to be a blessing to people in need. So what, he, what the Bible's teaching us is that our, our generosity is a reflexive response to the grace of God in our lives. See, generous people. The, the, so this is what this tells me about this faith family as a whole. As a church, the majority of you Understand the grace of God because that's the only way that you can be generous. They're connected. And if you're here this morning and you're realizing that you're not generous, you don't have a generosity problem, you have a grace problem. Because if you just say to yourself, well, that's it, I mean, I feel bad, I'm not going to be the, you know, I'm going to, I'm not happy about this, but I'm going to do this so that I, you know, no. You have a grace problem. Don't do it out of compulsion. Do it out of a response to grace. To grace. Grace is the action. Generosity is the reaction. That's all it is. So that's why I thought about this. I thought, well, it's... You know, Lord, how come, you know, how come I don't have to talk about money a lot? Like, I just talk about it when it comes up. Like, I don't have to do a series on generosity. And then God reminded me, you do, Tony. You you teach about grace all the time. That is generosity. That's how you get to generosity. It's through grace. It's a grace issue. It's grace. And look in in verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. What a statement that is. What is Paul saying here? He's saying, listen, this is a grace issue and Jesus is the example. 
He's the example that we, we look to, that we model, that we respond to. When I say grace leads to generosity, if you have a grace problem, how do you address a grace problem? That verse right there. You, you have to real, stop and consider how did I get to where I am? How do I have whatever it is that I have, no matter how small it is? How did I get here? How did I get that? How does everything that I've ever been able to do, how has that been accomplished? How has anything that's ever been in flow, anything that's flowed into my life, where did it come from? It, come, it came from a, a, a God who owed you nothing. And you owed him everything. And instead of looking at you and you're in, in our indebtedness to him and our inability to ever pay it, his response was not to require payment on our part, but to pay it off for us. My goodness. So you just swim in a sea of grace for a little while, son, and, it'll, and you'll just you know, open up your hands and stop being such a miser. Did all that to meet our need. God gave the most valuable thing in the universe himself on our behalf. So here's what Jesus did. See, he, he, he saw his life as something to steward for the glory of God. You see, he, he, didn't, he didn't see his life as his own. He didn't see his life as his possession. He didn't see his life as something that he... And think about who he is. I mean, he's God, and he still saw it as, a, as something to steward to the glory of God. So we can, well, I mean, I don't, I don't need that. There's nothing else I can say. If that reality doesn't, doesn't uh, cause your heart to, A, be, gr- be grateful this morning for how you've had such an opportunity to be generous. Or spur your heart to say, my goodness, how have I missed this? Well, then there's really nothing else I can say about it. We're generous because he led the way in generosity. God so loved the world that he gave. From the very beginning, it was about giving. Robert Murray McShane, a a Scottish preacher from the 1800s, I enjoy reading some of his books and sermons. And he was talking about money, and this is what he said. He went through some objections and answers. And so objection number one is he's telling his people this. Now remember, this is in the 1800s, This is, and yet still today. The people would say, well, my money is my own. And here's his answer. Well, Christ might have said, my blood is my own. My life is my own. No man forces it from me. Then where would we be? Then he brought this objection up. The poor are undeserving. No doubt there were people in his 1800 congregation that were, would, were thinking that. And so his answer to that was, well, Christ might have said the same thing, that we were wicked rebels against my father's will. Shall I lay down my life for these? I will give to the good angels. But no, he gave his blood for the undeserving. And the third objection he brought was the poor may abuse it. 
if we give it to them, they may misuse it. And his answer is, well, Christ might have said the same. Yes, with far greater truth, Christ knew that thousands would trample his blood under their feet and that most would despise it, that many would make it an excuse for sinning more. Yet he gave his own blood. You see, when, when you really stop to think about the way God has done the things that God has done with regards to generosity, it's really not a, it's, it's really not a difficult conversation, is it? No. Because at the end of the day, are we stewards or are we owners? We're, we're just stewards. We're just stewards. It's strange how for so many in this time that thoughts about being surprisingly generous make some people feel like they're giving away their security or they're, they're somehow losing their stability. Isn't that nuts? Wait, what? So you are your security? You are your stability? Like, Wow, do we have different worldviews? No. No. See, here's the thing. The, the only way to believe this is that you, you'd have to convince yourself that somehow you're the source. Or that maybe you're not the source, but now you're the owner. Neither of which are true. You're not the source nor the owner. Someone else is the source, and we're merely the steward. And so notice how it ends in verse 15, and then we'll be done. As it is written, whoever gathered much has nothing left over, and whoever gathers little had no lack. Now, what, what is this? Here we have a reference from Exodus chapter 16 about manna. Why does Paul quote Exodus 16 to, to sort of drive this point home? Think about, think about the Israelites as they encountered manna. See, we just think about, oh, well, manna fell from heaven. Oh, oh. But just stop and think about the, put yourself in their shoes. Up until that point, these generations of Israelites had only known one thing, which is what? Slavery. That's all they knew was slavery. The only way they knew how to react and, and deal with authority was through the context of slavery. All the gen- that's all they had known from being under, under the, the Egyptians' rule. And so they had this context of, of slavery. And whatever they had to, what, what, how, how would they provide for themselves in Egypt? They had, to, they had to do it themselves. They had to be diligent. They had to work hard. They had to, they had to hide and sneak and scrape around and and so they had this broken context of of authority and god used manna to teach his people that he's not like pharaoh see if you're if if you see what you have as the egyptians uh, taught the Israelites to see what they had. You have a very flawed... You, you missed the message of manna. 
This is God's way of pulling them into intimacy. He was, what was he teaching them with the manna? He could have taken care of them in any way. Remember when they left Egypt, Pharaoh said, get out of here and take what with you. Take your herds and your flocks with you. They took herds and flocks with them. When they didn't leave empty-handed, they had some pots and pans and whatever herds and flocks and whatever they had, they left with. And God could have used any means by which to do this, but he waited until their resources were depleted and they were in need, and then he used manna to teach them, A, first, first of all, how to trust him so that through trust he could lead them into intimacy with him. And that's why manna worked the way that it worked. That's why Jesus comes along and says, pray for your bread. Mm -mm. Daily bread. You could only collect the manna for the day. You couldn't store it up. Because God's saying, no, you got to learn to trust me. See, if, if, if you don't learn the message of manna, you're going to get confused and start thinking that you're the source of your security or you're the one who who's, keeps your life stable. No. Manna taught us that. So what happens is that we, we begin to realize that generosity is really, it's really a, it really leads us to freedom, doesn't it? It does. It, it frees us. To what God's intention for us is all along. To be his children, to trust him, to be in an intimate relationship with him. See, to know. Why did Jesus say over and over and over, stop worrying? Stop worrying. Don't you see? Look at the birds. Look at the fields. Why are you worried all the time? Because you, you don't trust me. Why didn't he just say, look, I'm glad that, you know, we're in relationship. Go ahead and worry about it. No, because if you don't trust, you're never going to get to intimacy. You got to walk through the door of trust to get into the place of intimacy. And that's the thing about generosity is that, that once you pass through the door of trust and you walk into intimacy, it's not the end of the journey. That in intimacy, there's more, there are more doors to open. That's what's so beautiful about the whole. But you can't change the order of the doors. You can't switch them around. You can't go through one of these doors until you go through. There's only one path through. So trust leads to intimacy. But in intimacy, you can find generosity. And the door of generosity leads us to a depth of joy and intimacy that can be reached in no other way. In no other way. That's the thing about, because, see, generosity is the fulfillment of trust and intimacy. And so here's what I want you to know as we finish today. That in your generosity, in your surprising generosity... In your response to the grace of God, it's such a beautiful picture just to watch how you care for each other and love each other and work for each other.
Now, I know a lot of you have been asking. I mean, it, it, it is. I mean, let's just get it all out on the table, God. God's the one who authors the timing of various things, and he puts us in places and gives us opportunities to understand, to know. And, and so here we are at this text, and my phone has, has just gotten barraged by so many of you concerned about Colby and Haley. And I've said to each and every one of you, they're okay. They're going to continue to be okay. And we're going to see to that. And, and you'll, you'll probably have opportunities to play a role in that. But at this moment in time, they're okay. Not because, listen, it wasn't because uh, before the church even could do anything, their community group had already handled it. Already handled it. Handled it. Done. Don't worry about it. Don't think about it. Don't. See, above and beyond just took. And, and who's their community? A bunch of broke young couples. Took care of it. They're okay. And they're going to continue to be okay. You know why? Because they're part of our family. And so here's the thing, as we love them and care for them through the process that we're in right now, it'll be surprising to them, but it won't be surprising to me. Because I know you. I see you. I I experience this all the time. It's such a blessing. Thank God for his grace and for the work that it's done in our hearts as a family. Amen. Let's stand and bow our heads. God, we want to take a few moments and just pause and say thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that you, you gave up everything. And it's in your poverty that we became rich. And that we are, we are rich not in, in material wealth, first and foremost. Not in possessions, Lord, but what makes us rich is salvation. We're rich because we have received the blessing of the blood of Jesus given on our behalf. And so thank you, Lord, that in a moment of insurmountable debt, we could stand before you knowing that we could never repay. We could never pay that which we owed. You erased it in grace. So we're grateful today. Thank you. We take this, these few moments just to respond in gratitude. So Lord, right now, right where we are with our heads bowed, each of us in our own heart is going to say thank you, God. Thank you for the grace that you've shown us. Tell him Tell your father what you know about his grace. How you feel it. How it's transformed you in so many ways. That what we have as a family, we couldn't have if it wasn't for his grace. We say thank you, God for generosity 
you for putting us in a generous family. Thank you for the joy that we experience watching your kingdom expand, watching people be blessed, watching needs be taken care of, watching people be utterly reminded of what it's like to be genuinely and truly loved. We don't deserve it, Lord, but we do receive it as a gift from you. Thank you for this family that you've given us, Lord. And Lord, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you as Father, that this morning cannot say wholeheartedly and assuredly that they're your son or your daughter, Lord, may they not leave this place today without having a conversation so that they might know the beauty of grace. Thank you, thank you, thank you for all that you've done. You are such a good father. We rejoice in being your children. May your hand remain upon this family. May our existence be to be about your work and your glory here across the street and around the world. Thank you, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.